grab a beverage or two We got professional guests with lots of stories for you So take a seat right here And join us on Careers Over Beers Alright, welcome to Careers Over Beers Podcast I'm the host, Jesse Krause uh, Thank you all so much for listening and watching And please like and subscribe and share Also, most importantly, reach out to people. If you have a job and you're a human being, you'd be a perfect candidate to come on this podcast. So if you or somebody you know would like to come on, please send them my way or send yourself my way and let's share a drink together. There's nothing to it. We're just bullshitting. We're having a having a drink, having a conversation. Oh, heck yeah. Takes I'm, an hour. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. And uh, today I have somebody from the Museum of World Treasures on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Go ahead and tell the world who you are. All right. My name is Kristen Martin. I am the programs director at the Museum of World Treasures. I've been there. I just hit my eight-year anniversary last year. Eight years? Yeah. Although, if you in, include my time as a volunteer and intern, that'd be about 10 years. So, wow, it's crazy. Hell Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And in your description on your calendar invite, you put museum professional. Yeah, that's just my generic title. That's just a generic title. Yeah, I figure if you put, like, programs director on the title of the show, people would be like, programs director for what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I like like my titles and thumbnails to say, like, you know, museum pro or museum (laughs) director or whatever. Because it, it, you know, it's draws people in they know exactly what they're seeing exactly programs director could be for anything yes exactly so yeah well welcome and thanks for coming on awesome um we're making some fancy drinks for you today heck yeah you requested something really bougie Uh ah yes i did (laughs) oh the story behind this is i went to rome in 2016 um and I, i went to see all the history there for museum reasons and everywhere in rome they were always making these aperol spritzes and i thought they were delicious really so Aperol spritz. Okay, yes. so I was even hesitant to pronounce this because I don't know if it was Aperol, Aperol. Yeah, Aperol. I think it's supposed to be like <laughs> blood orange with some bitters or something. I don't know. Yeah, it says original recipe, Aperol, yeah. liqueur, mm-hmm. 11%. 11%, yeah. yeah. But that's just the, the flavor enhancer. Mm-hmm. We also have some champagne, I believe. Is it Prosecco? Prosecco. There we go. Yeah. Italian. Extra dry. Yes. So this is an Italian beverage. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you go to Rome, there will be a lot of Aperol spritzes. So. Well, you should feel kind of special because this is the first time I've ever popped champagne on the podcast. Yes. Well, that means that there, this is a celebration. Is this like, is this a, a milestone at all? Like, are, uh, is there yeah. a certain number that this is? It's episode 47. Heck so yeah. Big deal. It's a prime number. It's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> is it a prime number? I, I think so. That's how dumb I, I am. I, I don't even remember. I can't think of anything that multiplies to 47. True. So. Yeah. It's a good year. It was two years after the war ended. That's true. That's true. It's a big deal. Yes. Right? Yeah. I So my history, I, I have a degree in history, right? And I it's funny because people will be like, yeah, 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 this piece of history. And I'm like, I, I don't actually remember. I tell people that like maybe 5% of the work I do actually has to do with history because there's just that much administration and other things that go in there's a lot work. of other things that yeah, keep you yeah. busy. so like i have a history degree but i don't actually do just a ton of history on a daily basis so you i have, have to go and like refresh <laughs> you have a good enough knowledge of history to know world war ii ended in 45, 45? yes yeah. yes usually <laughs> sometimes there's just these really bad gaps though that i'm like oh that's embarrassing i forgot that <laughs> yeah you should know that yeah you have yeah. kids bringing up questions to you and you gotta you gotta be sharp you gotta be on top there of are it. so many kids that know more about dinosaurs than i do it's really embarrassing <laughs> Dude, we're gonna get into that yeah first of cool. all how do you make these 
his drinks. These Aperol spritzes. Actually, on the Aperol bottle. I'm gonna try and move See, I got this thing with me. Here. Yeah, I have this little jigger here. Okay, so it looks like half prosecco, half Aperol, and a bit of soda on top. There's a little. There's a little thing. How there. about this? Uh huh. We'll make I, yours I, first. Okay. That way, I, I don't mess your drink up yeah. for you. Yeah. I have some ice in here if you yeah. want to use these tongs. Okay, cool. <laughs> or use your hands. I don't care. See, here's the thing. It's pretty much everything I do at work is about teaching, you know, whether it's marketing or anything. So today, y'all are learning about an Italian beverage. We're learning about these Italian beverages. What about the, the Aperol Spritz. And, uh, I don't know if you want to use tongs or not. You can use your hands. I, I don't will. care. I will do my best. <laughs> I'm just going to put a couple and, uh, pieces these are, of ice in yeah. here little baby wine glasses oh i like it so we might have to burn through a couple drinks at least oh no Depend- okay. yeah Here's the know. tongs if you want to I'll just put it on the edge there and i will uh just make it up as i go here make it up as you go yeah can't really screw it up that bad it says one one parts aperol one part yeah prosecco is that how you say it yeah, i would say so okay do i get to pop the prosecco i'm gonna try it yeah pop it okay. do it i get it everywhere oh well oh well this place is made for that. Yes. Just don't hit me in the face. That yeah, that would not be fun. There we go. Woo! You didn't want to shoot the cork. Yeah, I, 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 it didn't like. <laughs> it, it didn't do it. You might thing. knock out one of my lights up here. Yeah, that would not be cool. <laughs> All right, and then what? Like a little soda on top. Oh, oh yeah. Man, it's there got you a go. But orange. There's a soda. Yeah. GPS signal lost. Oops. GPS Uh-oh. signal lost. Your GPS doesn't know you're in the Careers Over Beers podcast studio? It does not. <laughs> That's crazy. I need to fix that. I thought I told it that I was here, but it didn't know that. <laughs> All right. Definitely one of the more complicated drinks I've made yes. on here. Yeah, I figured you'd have so, other people like asking for this sort of thing, but you said oh, anyone I'm, you want, and I went for anyone yeah, I want. <laughs> yeah, hey, I, I like it. Yeah. I've never had this, so that's yeah. another cool part of this podcast. There you go. You gotta try. Have you only, tried any other new drinks? Um, yeah, I've tried several actually. Yeah. One of them was like a Russian vodka mixer type thing. Mm. I don't remember exactly, but. Yep, that's an Aperol spritz. All right, so tell me when to stop on this. Okay, like Pour halfway up. Halfway up? Yep, there you okay. go. And then yeah, I'm going to do some of this Prosecco. Yep, you don't want to skimp on the Aperol. That's where the. Is that where all the flavor's at? Yeah, because it's, it's, I would say, almost a bit of a bitter flavor. The Aperol is? Yeah, bitter and sweet, I would say. Is that enough of the champagne stuff? Sure. Yeah? Yeah. Top it with a little spritz of club soda? Yep, yep. Okay. And a little orange garnish. little orange garnish. Yep, yep. I'm going to do a little squeeze in mine. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. I didn't do that. So now I'm curious to hear what your... Uh, Look at how beautiful that looks. Your reaction is <laughs> to, the, to the Aperol. It's spritz. one of the prettier drinks that I've had on Heck here. Yeah. Look at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, cheers, Kristen. Cheers. Oh yeah, that's good. Okay, yeah. You're like, I don't know about that drink. No, that's good. <laughs> I like it. It's got the dryness of the uh, champagne, but mm-hmm. a different. This is a different flavor. Yeah, and now you've got a whole thing of it. It's kind of so weird. Yeah, you've got to do something. So I got to keep drinking these when we're done. No. Yep. Yep. Oh, oh no. Dang. Yeah. yeah. I'll oh, probably crap. have to refill part way through here. <laughs> I actually printed out a. I actually printed out the ingredients on here and how to make it. Oh, there it. you go. I forgot about Hopefully that. Hopefully we did it right. I just followed what yeah. it said on the bottle. It says, learn how to make a classic Aperol spritz. Yeah. Did we do it right? I think we did it all right. Sweet. Yeah, it tastes good to me. So now that we got that out of the way. Julio. Yeah, tell us about your career. Tell us about what you do. Um, So I work in a museum, obviously. Um, I 
didn't necessarily think I was going to work at a museum all through college. I went to Newman University and I was undecided at first and I took some of the I guess, regular, what do you call them? General education courses. Gen ed. Yeah, yeah. And um, we had some really cool history classes. Um, I took one about genocide, which was depressing, but also very interesting. Very um, educational. Yeah. One of the professors <laughs> over there, um, Dr. McFall, Dr. Kelly McFall, uh, he does a lot of work with these like role-playing game style history classes. So we role-played like this one emperor in China and we role-played the trial of Anne Hutchison. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. I love it. I just want to take all the history classes. So at some point, I started taking a lot of history classes. And I was like, you know, I might as well just get a history major at this point. <laughs> uh, so, And I really had no particular idea what I wanted to do for a career. So I did that. I did a little bit of biology work, too, and then found out that I don't really like chemistry. So history it was. And I needed to do some service hours um, for my scholarship at Newman. So one of the other professors over there, Dr. Golden, was like, hey, you know, I'm on the board of this museum, Museum of World Treasures. They're always looking for volunteers. You're a history major. You could use something for your resume. Would you like to volunteer there? And I'm like, sure. So I volunteered um, to write some of the signs for their Roman coin timeline and ended up doing a few other things. And then it's actually pretty crazy. So like... I'm turning in my last papers for uh, my degree, like ever, you know, before I graduate. And I turn it in and I flip over to my personal email and in there is this email from the Museum of World Treasures like, hey, we're hiring a new education director. And I'm like, oh, yes. This is my moment. <laughs> this is my moment. Yeah, exactly. Because I was like, I didn't know what I was going to do with a history degree, you know, I uh, hoping for something to come up. So I applied and I got that job and uh, I've been there ever since. So wow. it's been a wild ride. <laughs> Were you hoping for something that specific, like that like that job specific, like director you know, of a museum? I, I, or? I just really didn't know what I wanted to do, uh, which was very stressful at the end of my career um, or the end of my undergrad. So I got very lucky that opened up the museum. I don't know where I would have wound out. And even I would say probably for my first half year at the museum, I wasn't really sold that I wanted to do museum work until I started to meet some other museum professionals and find out really what it is that museums do. And then I was like, oh my goodness, I'm hooked. I love this. Yeah. So since then I've really delved into what what it is that museums do and that it's not just like, oh, here's some stuff. So so you're one of those people that were just floating along, yeah. get your degree, this interests me, and then yeah. all of a sudden, bam, job yeah. falls in my lap. Yeah, which which is nuts to me because I'm normally not that type of person. Like, I'm usually very, like, I've got Rigid, like, doing. this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, like, I've got a plan. I'm never going to be stuck without a job, kind of. But I don't know. It's hard for me to figure the career thing out, so... Museums have been great for me. <laughs> that, that's great. I'm glad it worked out for you. Yeah. You know, there's a yeah. lot of people that don't get that opportunity where oh, something right. just falls in their lap and they're yeah. like, hell yeah, I'm going to yeah. do this. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that's a lot of why I'm, I am at the Museum of World Treasures because it's been a good opportunity. It continues to be a good opportunity. I'm like, all right, we'll, we'll do this. And the museum's been really good to um, grow with me as I, so I started out doing education and then I was interested in doing more things like uh, working on exhibits or working with the collection. So having hands on the artifacts themselves. So I got to move into a position that made room for more of that. And then currently right now I'm going through a place where I'm moving away from some of the education work and the work on exhibits and things like that and going more into a marketing role. So, 
you know, within a month or two here, very likely that my title will change to marketing director as mm-hmm. I kind of get interested in something different. So, so you've kind of been around the block in the museum. You've yeah. done it all. Yeah, ish. ish. Yeah. I've never been in charge of the whole place. Except which for is okay around with the me. company. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm okay with that. See, the funny thing is I used to joke that I was like, no, I don't want to do that because when there's a fire in the middle of the night, I don't want to be the one getting a call mm-hmm. until... Last month, we actually had a fire outside the museum. There was a fire like that set off all the smoke alarms inside the museum, and I got the call. I was out to dinner with my family, and I get these calls like, hey, the smoke alarms are going off. And you had to hey, go? Hey, the fire truck is coming. Like, oh, I had to leave dinner with my family on a Sunday night to go deal with this fire. And I'm like, well, that's not even a valid excuse anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's- The it's fire was outside though? It was outside. Luckily. And our building was actually built in 1914 as a fireproof storage building. So Ooh. everything was safe. Somebody was planning that out. Somebody yeah. realized this is a great place for a museum. Yeah, even though it was it, it was built as a warehouse. So up until 2001, it was more of a warehouse. Yeah. But yeah. Okay, so earlier on in the podcast, you just said that- you didn't realize what museums do. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What do museums yeah. do? I don't know. I'm not sure if I'd really given it any thought that there was much more to a museum than like, oh, here's some old stuff. Enjoy. Um, I probably, within a few months of starting at the museum, went to a conference of museum professionals and attended some different sessions and started to learn that this is really about people understanding their heritage and telling stories and learning to become more empathetic by learning about people other than themselves. Um, And really, the more I got into that, the more I got enthralled by it. You know, that um, in 2016, I took um, a training for a group called the National Association for Interpretation. This is the kind of training that like park rangers do to learn to give the really cool tours that they do that they're like, oh, the bear, he goes up the mountain, you know, whatever really cool things they talk about. You're basically able to tell a story to a bunch of kids. Yeah, yeah. It's like professional tour guide training. And they talk about, they're like, okay, like you need to tell a story in this way to get people interested and you need to give them this information and it needs to be relevant and relatable and it needs to be fun. And I was like, heck yeah, like I get this. I understand this. I like this. Um, So learning that there's an entire art behind what happens there, like if you walk into a museum, there's certain ways that the signs are presented or certain ways that the tour is planned that make it so it's easier for you to take in that knowledge versus, say, like a textbook. Yeah, they just have different ways because people are built differently. Their brains are wired differently. Mm -hmm. Some people remember things a certain way and Mm -hmm. making it fun, making it colorful, Mm -hmm. things like that makes you absorb it better yeah yeah i I, I understand that completely yeah yeah. rather than i mean there are the old people though like my dad we go to a museum and he can just sit there and read passage after passage after passage on these pictures yeah and i have like adhd or something because when i'm running around i'm like i can't do this oh yeah i want to see a picture i want to see a picture yeah i recently got diagnosed with adhd i'm like well that makes sense but (laughs) (laughs) um i i think it's because i work in museums now i can't do that at museums anymore i used to but now i'm more interested in seeing what the museum is doing i'm like oh how did they attach that sign to the wall or you know what kind of machine are they using to run that tv interactive (laughs) i don't actually like pay much attention to the history anymore so it's it's kind of an interesting problem to have i'm always interested too in like having those old artifacts sitting there Mm -hmm. how do you control it so that it doesn't break down further and it's temperature Mm -hmm. and humidity controlled yeah yeah that's a whole yeah that's a whole 
piece of it. And that's actually not one that I've worked in specifically too much in my time in the museum. I've done more of the yeah, interpretation end of it. So like education and exhibits, but I've done some of it. Uh, yeah, a lot of it is trying to control the environment, the humidity, like you'd mentioned. And I mentioned earlier, our building is over 100 years old. So that makes it very fun. Uh-huh. But it's a lot of pieces like, you know, how's the AC doing? Um, if there's a fire outside the building, is that smoke getting in and sitting on these artifacts? You know, do we need to call in a special conservator? Is there too much light on these artifacts when they go on exhibit? Um, we have one staff member, our collections manager, who her entire full-time job is just making sure these items are inventoried, they're packed correctly in acid-free paper, they're not getting too much light, we have legal documentation on them, we're not holding on onto things that aren't legal, you know, there's... Uh, a whole set of things that all go into, yeah. as you kind of alluded to, just taking care of Is that items. person inspecting each item every day and making sure that there's no like uh, deterioration or damage or yeah. anything like that? I mean, I wish that was the case. At this point, we're um, working through getting an initial inventory of everything we have in the building. So we have... Mm, you didn't have that before. Yeah, no. So our, our museum <laughs> was founded in 2001. Um, by a private collector. It, it is a not-for-profit, so 501c3 not-for-profit organization, but when he started it, he did a lot of things his own way, and that just kind of meant bringing all his stuff in the building and not really inventorying it. So we have about, I think, 9,000 items in the building, and a lot of them don't have really good information on them. So we're in the middle of a, I think, five-year process of trying to inventory everything, and we're about halfway there. So we've got our full-time staff member and a whole slew of volunteers who are just working to go through every single, single thing we have and get a picture, get a description, get a value. It's yeah. tedious, Very but probably tedious. needs to be done. <laughs> well, and that's one that I always like to, you know, when people are like, oh, can you just take this um, old World War II jacket from my grandpa for your collection? You know, it needs to be in a museum. And a lot of times we'll turn that stuff down and people don't understand, like, you're a museum, you take that stuff, why wouldn't you do that? And it's, well, every single item we take in, we have to inventory it, which takes, you know, half an hour to an hour. And from that point, we have to store it, we have to figure out how we're going to put it on display, we have to check in on it, like you were mentioning. That's a lot of time. So unless if it fits in with the greater mission of the museum, you know, trying to educate etc. We're not going to take it in. So I think a lot of times people don't realize how much work goes into taking care of the items. How does a museum get an item? Like, are you requesting for items from certain p places or people? Yeah. Or are you just relying solely on people saying, hey, I have this fossil. Do you mm -hmm. want to display it in your museum? Yeah, that definitely varies from museum to museum. Some museums will have um, foundations or uh, funds to buy things. We don't. Um, we're fairly small. So we, yeah, basically rely on people bringing stuff to us. Sometimes they'll just put it on loan. You know, if we're like, hey, we could really use this amethyst geode for this exhibit. Can you load a, loan us your amethyst geode? Amethyst geode? Yeah. We have what is that? Massive geode. It's like you know, three feet long that it looks like a rock from the outside and on the inside there's little bits of amethyst. It's oh. pretty cool. Yeah, so we have one of those on loan. Um, or sometimes people just come in and be like, trying to think of 
hey, I have a Triceratops skull just laying around, you know, as one does. And yeah. uh, <laughs> as, as most of us do. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we'd like to donate that to the museum. And so they'll give us information, they'll give us photos. And then we have a committee that will look at it and think about, hmm, can we store that easily? Can we take care of that? Will it go in our exhibits? Well, you need to determine if it's real, first of all. Also that. If which, somebody comes yeah. in with a, you know, a T-Rex femur bone, mm-hmm. you got to make sure it's a, the real deal, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that also requires a lot of like, okay. Testing. And I need to know a stuff. paleontologist, you know, yeah. Because a lot of us on staff, we're not, I'm not a paleontologist. So I have to be like, okay, I need to know a paleontologist. Yeah. So, it, yeah. I'm glad that we have those uh, checks and balances now because, mm-hmm. you know, back in the 1800s and times like that, People would display all sorts of shit. They'd be oh, like, oh, yeah. this right here is a mm-hmm. femur bone from, you know, a homo erectus, oh, half yeah. ape, half man or whatever. Oh, yeah. I and love it. And it was all bullshit. <laughs> because <laughs> our museum is, uh, I guess the term would be encyclopedic, but it has stuff from dinosaurs to ancient times to modern times. So it has a lot of stuff. And earlier on in our history, they would just pack it in, just have all these cases with lots of stuff. And people would comment that it looked like a cabinet of curiosities, kind of what you were talking about. And um, so for us, it's really exciting to be like, no, no, that's actually not what we are. We actually research these things and we put them on exhibit and things. But you do have real dinosaur bones, though? Yes, we do. So we actually have um, Ivan the T-Rex, which not a lot of people in Wichita know this, but as of when he was last appraised, Ivan was one of the 10 most complete T-Rexes on display anywhere in the world. And he's right here in Wichita. And it's real bones? Yeah, at 50%. Like, 50%. None, of, none of them are entirely real, so Ivan's about 50%. That's what I figured, because a yeah. lot of... I've read before that a lot of these dinosaur skeletons in places you see, mm-hmm. they can consider them 100% full mm-hmm. because half of it is there or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you have a right arm, you don't need to have a left arm to know that it's what it looks like on the other side. Oh, yeah, you know? that makes sense. Yeah, so a lot of ours is cast from other dinosaurs or, yeah, yeah mirror cast. Um, but I think I'd have to check again, but I think Sue, Sue the T-Rex in Chicago, I think is like 80% complete maybe. So yeah, but it's really cool. to have. It's crazy. People don't realize how rare fossils are. Mm-hmm. You grow up and you see fossils all the time in museums and some of them might be fake. Some might be real, mm-hmm. but the reality is to have an actual fossilized dinosaur is like mm-hmm. extremely rare. Am yeah. I wrong? I mean, I couldn't speak to that too much but i know there aren't just a ton of t-rexes around so (laughs) just from what i understand yeah and that's a funny one working at an encyclopedic museum is you know i have to give tours of all of these things but really i only got a degree in history so i come in and i have to learn enough to be an expert on at least the fossils that we have but usually once it kind of goes outside of the realm of the things we have i'm like Mm. I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> Just enough to be a tour guide. <laughs> so yeah. Have yeah. you ever spent the night in the museum? Yes. <laughs> you have? Yes, many times. It's is great. It freaky. Yes, it it is. I've actually <laughs> lost a little bit of the freak out factor when I first started. I, I what I've decided is I've kind of mapped out where all the mannequins are in my head because there's a lot of uh. mannequins that have uniforms and things on them, and mm. when it's dark at night, like you turn a corner and you just see this humanoid nope. figure right here. Yeah, exactly right, and they don't freak me out anymore unless if there's a new one or someone moves one, and then they freak me out. But yeah, I have stayed overnight. We watch night at the museum. Um, there's this one light switch that is located right next to the mummy room and I have to go turn it off when all the other lights are off. So I have to take my little phone 
like flashlight and go back and like unlock this finicky door right next to the mummies real mummies yeah real mummies and one time i managed to scare myself because i went into this room and i'm like oh this is creepy i know i get creeped out when i go in here i'm gonna tie a plastic skull down from the door jam so when i open this up the plastic skull will be there and it'll scare me sure enough next time i went in i about screamed because this plastic skull comes at my face so yeah it's it's a lot of fun i enjoy it but i've probably been there 10 or 15 times overnight and it's one just of for my fun or because you're required to uh yeah we have overnight campings uh usually it's scout groups that do that so and a lot of times i'll volunteer to do it just because it's a nice change of pace from our normal so have you had any weird encounters anything come to life I spirits not. released. Well, last month we actually did an event called Haunted History where we uh-huh. brought in the Wichita Paranormal Society. I, I think it's Spirit Hunters Paranormal Society. I'm sorry if anyone's listening. Ghost Hunters? <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they, I don't know if they would call themselves Ghost Hunters, but they, they, you know, talk to the spirits that are in the building. Oh, and they, I need they to interview the, one of those guys. Yeah, they're, oh, I can get you their information. Give me their info. <laughs> yeah, but they will have like a connect, like you put on your Xbox and they'll have an iPad and it will like read the energy signatures and they can see like the, the figure of a skeleton there. So they went around the museum and I went with them and they also have the, I think they're called K2s that read energy signatures and they had a spirit box to like hear. And it was so cool to see the places where the purported energy was yes, gathering. We're and- at, there was one um, Egyptian mask, I guess it would go over a mummy that like every time they went by, there was something there. And I was like, that's so creepy. Um, so you, you that think was it's real? going on. See, my thing is like, I don't, I don't, when in doubt, I kind of, uh, I've told people, I think it's mostly because I do have to be there at night. So I would much rather believe that there's nothing there for mm. my own sanity. Because yeah. once I start thinking there's something in there, it's going to get a lot harder. Yeah, They say like spirits and stuff can attach themselves to objects. If they, I've, if I've they heard believe it, that. Yeah, actually I did have one rather creepy experience once. This was Let's probably in 2015. I have a video of it too. So basically... At nine o'clock at night, all of the alarms in the building went off. So it's, you know, a museum. So it's got door alarms and motion alarms and the whole shebang. All of them went off and nobody had entered the building. So one of the staff members went in, police were there. They pulled up the cameras at whatever time the alarms went off. In one of the offices, all the swivel chairs spun and went back to where they were. And like all this stuff on the desk just like moved and came back. What? Yeah. And you have video of this? Yeah, I have video of it real video of it yes i have real video i, need, I, I could probably pull it up really fast and i can yeah. show the video to you too if, if you, you could need. find that that would be amazing for my own sanity i choose to believe that like there was an electricity flash and it like spliced it in but <laughs> i don't know because i mean it, it it does appear to me that it could just be like a video splice but i mean they're rolling chairs and they're the exact same position they were before okay here it is here it is let's see it let's see it Okay. It's like a four second thing, so maybe it'll like loop. Some other file saves for that. What? You see it? Yeah. Some other file saves. I used to okay, work in so, that office. Yeah, it's exactly like you're describing for people listening Some right there. It's a bunch of office chairs sitting there, and yeah. then all of a sudden they just flip, and then they flip back. Yeah. So it's like during one frame of the still. Yeah. 
yeah. they turned and then they turned back. Yeah, I definitely like called the chaplain, the priest who's my chaplain when I was at Newman, like at 11 o'clock at night. I was like, Father, my workplace is haunted. Like, I need to get it. I need holy water. I need, oh my that's gosh, pretty my cool. office is haunted. No, that's awesome. I mean, that's cool. That's my cool story <laughs> right there. So yeah, I'm fa- I'm very fascinated by all those things. Yeah. I don't know if I believe they're necessarily real or not, but I, I want to believe they're real. I hope yeah. they're real. Yeah, so, but then I got, that priest got me in touch with another priest, and he's like, okay, so, there's ways that this could happen. One, has anyone ever died in the building? I'm like, well... There's dead bodies. It's a hundred, yeah, yeah, right? There's <laughs> dead bodies in the building, like, multiple dead bodies, and it's a 101-year-old building. Like, people could have died. And he's like, two, does anyone around there practice Wiccan? I'm like, 40,000 people come through here a year, like, very possible. Sure. And then there was... Uh, is it old objects that like an unrestful spirit could have attached to him? Like, yes, it's a building full of old objects. So uh, yes, 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 and uh, yes, 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 yes. I'm freaked out. <laughs> He's like, yep, 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 yep. yep you're screwed. You're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's very interesting sometimes. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I mean, people always have stories. You know, Ooh. if you talk to anybody that works in an industry like yours, and they have all these artifacts and objects that belong to people at one time. Most mm-hmm. of them have some sort of story. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Right? There's a lot. There's a museum podcast out there called The M-Files. Shout out to them. Love them. Um, but they start every podcast with, okay, tell us a cool, creepy story that happened in your museum. And invariably, almost everyone yeah. has a like. I have a good friend who works at a museum, and they were doing a haunted tour. And he said that like a spirit ran its fingers through his hair during this tour i'm like oh no thank you i don't want that (laughs) you ever talk to him when you're in there at the museum uh no not really i figure i don't want to mess with him although there used to be some lamps in the mummy room like we lit it up with like regular household lamps and as a joke we would kind of when we go turn them off at night we'd be all right night ladies and then turn off the lamps just to make it a little (laughs) less creepy the the two mummies are female so okay night Uh. ladies Turn off the lamps. Yeah, and you never like get it. in front of the mirror at night and like do those three circles and oh, say these no. weird. Yeah. And see, the funny thing is, and <laughs> I, I am a person who's very phobic of dead bodies. And I, this is this is a true story. When the Museum of World Treasures first opened, I was in grade school, and they'd have video, um, not videos, commercials out. And I remember seeing it, and they're like real dead mummies, and I was like, I am never going to that museum. Like, I am scared of mummies. I will never go to that museum. And here I you are. There. Now, now <laughs> I work there. <laughs> here you are, putting them to sleep every night. Yes, yes. I've never touched them. I've never been there when they've been opened. But I did give tours for like two years without entering that room. I would like bring the scared? tour groups up. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, okay, guys, go on in there. And like I knew all the information, but I was like too too spooked to go into the mummy room. So, <laughs> What's the coolest artifact you guys have there? Yeah, I was going to say the mummies are actually my favorite. I, I do really like them because they're real people, and we've put them through CT scans so we can see, you know, how their bones are and how their organs are, and we can, you know, make guesses about what their lifestyle was like. Um, are actually, they Egyptian mummies or what? Yes, they're Egyptian mummies. Actually, cool story. So one of them, she's an Egyptian mummy, but she has a really colorful history. So there is a newspaper article that we found about her in the 70s. So she belonged to this guy named Robert Ganter, and Robert Ganter would sell postage stamps, and he'd go to trade shows to sell his postage stamps. And he bought Baca, is the name of this mummy. He bought Baca as kind of his 
shtick or like the thing that he used to get people to come to his table. So there's actually a picture in this newspaper article of this mummy that is definitely ours inside of this glass coffin that's got a little like fringy around the outside that looks like a postage stamp. And it says like real Egyptian princess, whatever. And like he just hauled this gal from place to place to try and sell his postage stamps. And there's like a picture of him and his like, you know, plaid laser, leisure suit. And I'm like, and, and the article's Different even times. worse, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, when the trade show closes up at night, he leaves the old ball and chain and goes out for a drink, you know. Oh, yeah. She has the face leaves her at home. Cell. Yeah, yeah. That's like some psycho type stuff. Oh, it's weird. I if, if I had not seen this newspaper article with the picture that is definitely our mummy, I would not... I would not have believed it, but I always end that story with like, you know, I'm glad that she's at the museum now because yeah. you know, we exist to take care of and respect human remains. You got to so. kind of be a weirdo to do stuff like that, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Kind of like the movie Psycho when he kept his mom upstairs. Oh, gosh. You ever seen that? Yes, I have definitely seen that. It made me watch it in high school. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, yeah. it's funny because there's like, I work at a museum, but I don't collect this sort of stuff personally i'm kind of like you have the people that really like to collect the stuff and then i don't know maybe separate is like the museum people that are like i'll take care of it but i don't want to own any of it on my own how does somebody even buy a a a, a mummy yeah you know that's a good question i don't actually know how they were purchased how does somebody just come across one and say oh yeah i'll take that yeah i know that one if not both of our mummies used to be inside of a collection at a university and then that museum closed down and i think that's when they were purchased but i don't know like where they went up for sale um a lot of what we do we don't actually talk about or spend time focusing like on how things were acquired outside of what's necessary just because a lot of what we like to tell in tours and things like that is about the historical important importance and we kind of try and doubt downplay the you know, the part where it's acquired or whatever, or the value. Like mm-hmm. a lot of times people ask me, you know, how much is this T-Rex worth? And we kind of almost try to downplay that so that it doesn't take away from like the actual importance from of the, the story of it. Yeah. Have you yeah. ever had some rich dude in there try to buy some stuff from you? I think I so. I want that T-Rex. I think so. I'm not sure if I've ever been the one to deal with it. I have had drunk people try and buy. I think my favorite was a drunk guy tried to buy like a plastic T-Rex so we have in the gift shop that's just there for display. And he <laughs> offered somebody like 700 bucks for it cash. And I'm like, sell it. Yeah, like, what? Give it to him. It's a plastic uh, sure. dinosaur. I don't care. You know, we have more of those in here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, oh my goodness. That sounds fun. Get drunk and go through a museum. Oh yeah. We did have a drunk history event once. We need to do you? that again. Oh yeah. And we just told weird history stories like the TV that's show. That's a good idea. Yeah. 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 So it's fun. I I enjoy the variety of things that we get to do. Yeah. You said you had a bunch of kids come through and they know more about dinosaurs than you do. I give a lot of tours. (laughs) So actually, that was what I did when I first started the museum. I was education director. So I took all the camps and the tours and the and during April and May, we get, you know, just tons of school groups, particularly, I'd say, like fifth and sixth grade groups, because fifth grade social studies is a lot of American history, like the founding of America. So they'll come in and see our Declaration of Independence. and The um, real our, one? Well, yeah, I was going to say side <laughs> one. It's not the real one, but it is one from 1843. So it's a very rare copy. Do you think it would be possible for me to steal it? I hope not. No. <laughs> the goal is that you would be seen by lots and lots of cameras. And not if I Nick Cage that shit. That's true. Get somebody in there to hack the cameras. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
We don't have a preservation room where they make delicious jams and jellies. No. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. So it has a... Is it like on actual parchment paper and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So basically the story of the Declaration of Independence that we have is that basically back then they didn't have Xerox machines, right? So, yeah, no, no, not in 1843. So when they wanted to make an exact copy, they basically would have to make a stamp that they could stick on a printing press and stamp it onto the parchment. So they would um, wet down the original Declaration of Independence onto like a flat piece of metal and they'd use the transferred ink to like etch it into the metal and then they'd <coughs> use that to make a stamp as a mold to make a stamp and then they'd stick the sta- oh. massive stamp onto a printing press and really? like, stamp it yeah so they did this i think in like the 1820s and then in the 1840s and they were going to run a thousand of them but for some reason nobody wanted to buy the declaration of independence i don't know why but they didn't um, so they actually didn't run very many. So the copy that we have is like super rare. So even though it's not the original Declaration of Independence, it's still, you know, really important. It's on that old school. Like, was that even actual paper? Or was it's it on rice paper is what I, yeah. yeah, but I don't know much about rice paper. So <laughs> I don't either. Yeah. I always thought it was some sort of like leather almost. Yeah. Parchment, the I believe. Oh shoot. I was going to say it's made from lamb, lambskin, but I could be wrong. I yeah. think that might be vellum. Something weird like that. I should know that. See, that's one of those little things. It's like, I should know that, but I've forgotten. So you should yeah. scan it for secret engravings I and know, code. Right? Everyone's like, is there anything on the back? I'm like, not that I know of. Put Although a on there. there was once a document that just looked like a random list of items and then somebody took it out to inventory it and they flipped it over and they realized that it had a docu- um, a signature from Meriwether Clark, as in like Lewis and Clark. So we had this signature from Clark of Lewis and Clark and we didn't realize it for wow. a while. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool find. We have little things like that where it's like, oh my gosh. That signatures from the Beatles. Yeah, didn't realize that was there. So you got to do what they did on the on a national treasure. Put like a lemon juice all over it. Oh man, no, I'm not gonna black light. <laughs> Maybe the black light, but the lemon juice. No, no, no. Yeah, but you pull a black light out, and then you're risking seeing a bunch of stuff you don't want to. Too like, oh my gosh, right? the Illuminati. <laughs> black lights aren't good for anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I have a lot of fun doing the doing the stuff. <laughs> yeah, what's your favorite part of your job? Oh, gosh, it's all over the place. It changes from day to day. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I think, I mean, just talking about it like this, I love, um, you know, telling people what I do or being able to give people tours of our storage area. So only 25, uh, not even 25, I think 12% of our items are actually on display. So a really big chunk is behind the scenes. Um, So I, you know, if I have friends or family or whoever that come to visit, I'll take them into the storage area and show them things back there. Why would you keep stuff hidden behind the scenes? Yeah, that's a good question. So that's actually standard for museums. I think usually the industry best practice is like 5% to be displayed. So multiple reasons. Yes, that'd be good. Thank you. I think... So 5%? Yeah, the standard reason is because being displayed oftentimes can be harmful. So it's got light on it when it's displayed. Oh. Um, so you want to rotate things in and out. That makes sense. But also, you know, to keep people interested, you don't want to have everything that you have out all the time. So ideally, um, you would rotate it from time to time. We're not quite there yet. 
but it's a goal. That way, if you come back, you know, the next month, you can possibly see something a little bit yes, different. That's that is the goal. Um, I actually really like for that um, the Wichita Art Museum in town. I love that every time you go there, you're always seeing something different. Like they have the standards that you're going to see all the time, but they also have different ones um, that will change on I think a quarterly basis sorry guys if I'm saying that wrong but <laughs> on a quarterly basis and then sometimes they'll have traveling exhibits um so I really that's cool I mean like that's that. that's something a lot of us don't think about mm-hmm. usually if you think if I'm going to go to the Wichita or the Museum of World Treasures I'm going to see everything that I saw the last time mm-hmm. yeah five percent wow yeah yeah and so we have a lot of secret stuff hidden away yeah, yeah we do or there's stuff that maybe we have a copy of it on display but not the actual thing so we have our hall of presidents is um has documents from all but the last two presidents on there um documents like sign things and stuff yeah but what's on display is not the real document because of fading so if you come in and you you know grab a staff member and get them to show you behind the scenes like i'll actually pull out a box and pull out a folder and be like okay this is George Washington's signature right there. Really? So, yeah. I Sometimes I forget that I could just, like, any given day, just walk in and be like, oop, there's George Washington's there's signature. There's George Washington's actual signature. Oh, yeah. 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 I sometimes almost think that maybe a downside of working in museums is you get a little blasé to, like, oh, yeah, George Washington's signature. Next. You get accustomed <laughs> to it. You're like, yeah, what, you what's the big deal? You do. Like, uh, you I got know. every president's signature in here. Yeah, what of it? <laughs> but... So when every time there's a new president, are you guys trying to acquire new things from them to add to your collection? Yeah, so we actually, um, when, I think while Trump was president, we had not acquired a signature from him and we're like, okay, we got to get it for our collection. So we literally just wrote a letter to the White House on letterhead, you know, see what we can do. Said, hey, we're a museum. Yeah. We need yeah. your autograph. Exactly. And then one day we got a call from the White House and our collections manager was like, gosh the white house is on the phone but pretty sure it was just like an intern that was like hey what would you like your letter to say and then i'm sure they like snuck it into a stack of things that he was going to sign so or they just have a, a stamp with his signature on yeah, it. Go, let's boom, hope boom. not like l- let's hope it's the real signature <laughs> that we're putting on display at the museum well so. you know the old ones probably are you know they yeah. weren't mass producing signatures and stuff like that back yeah. when george washington was president yeah yeah that's true so I, a lot of those i don't know and that's where a lot of um like we'd like to get research grants and things to be able to tell all of that because we're a fairly small operation so it can be a little harder to you know spend time getting in and being like is this for sure the right thing so we do Uh our best but and and there are things in our collection that if you go through they will be labeled as um this is a reproduction or this is a copy so there will be things in the collection that are a reproduction i was gonna ask that is there anything that you know personally is fake that Mm -hmm. people that that are coming through don't know is fake um i don't think so usually what we try and do is you know before it goes out obviously check on authenticity and if it's not you know a lot of times we won't show it or if it's not but it's a really good example of what we're showing um for example we have some pieces of spanish armor say or um, there's a widow's dress in our Civil War exhibit, and we know they're not the real deal. They're a reproduction. Um, but they're a really good example of it. We'll put it out, and we'll say, hey, this is a reproduction. I can't so think not, of anything. You're not ever going to intentionally 
falsify something and say yeah, this is the no, real deal and it's no. not and it, and it really sometimes like i guess i get why people do it but sometimes i'm like what like people will assume that we're doing that like without even asking they'll like walk in and see the dinosaurs like oh they're fake or my yeah. favorite was my mom like just assumed that the mummies were fake like just without asking which i was like first off like how do you do that like it's a body like you could look at it and you could tell it's a body so are you thinking that we stole a dead body like you know it, it might be a good front for a serial killer that's true you could have that's true. yeah you could have modern victims that you killed mummify them and display them in your museum and say look this is an egyptian prince yeah yeah and really that's it's true. somebody he killed last year we always joke with we have some of our some of our tour guides are you know older gentlemen like vietnam veterans that give amazing tours they're absolutely fantastic people but we always joke that oh you know when ron and larry die we're gonna mummify them and just put them in the exhibit <laughs> <laughs> if i said i want to be a mummy in your exhibit would you allow it after i died well, the question of the law. Local podcast host body. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I think I've heard. I've never found this, but I've heard there's a museum or a private collection or something here in Kansas where there's, like, a guy's mummy on display. But I've never, like, I've heard people tell me about it at the museum, but I don't know where it is or what it is. That'd be kind of crazy. Like, yeah. if you completely rethought the way cemeteries are done. And you just had a big display. And if you're willing to donate your body, we're going to display you forever in this case. I've heard that that'd in be crazy? Mexico, they have some museums that are like that. Do they? Like, just here's a bunch of mummified bodies. Woo-hoo. Or, well, I guess, is it in France that they have the catacombs with, like, all the Capuchin monks that are, like, skeletons? And oh, yeah. yeah. I've, I've seen, like, you know, those big monk sculptures or, yeah. or statues. Yeah. And they do an x-ray on it, and there's a guy in, actually inside of yes, it. Yes, I've seen have those. Have you seen those? That would creep me out. Yeah, no yeah. thanks. <laughs> they just thought it was, like, a statue that they mm-hmm. made, and then they, you know, did some x-rays on it, and they realized there's an actual dude in there. Yeah, like, yeah, I've, like I've heard about that one. I, I remember reading about that one, like, oh, shoot. <laughs> Hopefully not. You guys should try to get your hands on one of those. That'd be cool. Oh, I don't know how you go get one of those. They're probably in high demand. <laughs> yeah. I guess the idea was those monks were in such, what do they call that? They were such, oh, so close um, to Zen. Nirvana. Nirvana. Yeah. That uh, they just basically didn't even die. They just yeah. kind of stuck in this state of Nirvana. I think I remember talking to some, ki- some kids about that during a tour because I think they, they actually, like, they'd slow their respiration. And I think they were also drinking, like, a certain t- sort of sap that would help mummify their body. Inside out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they just kind of stop breathing and they're smiling and real they're big. And they're just like, Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> or I, if I'm saying the wrong one, if I'm just quoting a 90s band uh, here. Yeah, that's just a band. <laughs> yeah, just a band. <laughs> But yes, I, I talk about, I, I kind of joke sometimes that my tours are just like, hey, come look at all the dead stuff. Because literally it's like, okay, fossils. All right. Now fish skeletons. No, now, dead stuff is cool. Yeah. There's a museum yeah. in in, um, in LA, I'm pretty sure. Maybe I could be wrong, but I think it's the Museum of Death. I feel like I've heard of that. Yeah. That would creep it's me just out. All dead stuff. Yeah. Dead people, dead. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of freaky, but I've always had this morbid curiosity to kind of walk in there and just yeah i'm a big museum fan you know oh nice i, nice. I do love what, a good so what's museum. your favorite museum my favorite museum mm. is the cosmosphere oh, yes one of my yeah. coworkers used to work there yeah. yeah if you live in kansas and you haven't been to the cosmosphere please go up there immediately oh yeah we have some Absolutely. of the coolest stuff in the entire nation as far as space goes space exploration yeah space travel you know oh, yeah. world war ii rockets we have a v2 german rocket yeah 
It's cool. And that people don't realize the stuff we have right there in Hutchison, Kansas. Absolutely. It's the yeah. coolest museum around, I it think. Is no offense. So cool. Well, no, I get you. I get you. If you haven't been to my museum, though, obviously yeah. you need to go. I just, but, I love space and yeah. stuff like that. I was going to so. say, other than, you know, obviously my museum, one of my favorite local, if, if we're not putting in the Smithsonian and things, because mm-hmm. I've actually not been to all of them, but locally, the World War One Museum in Kansas City. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I've I, also been to that. It, it sounds awful, but I say it's my happy place. There's just something that, like, just gives me great peace about going there like it's put together so well and you got that monument there yeah. and i love world war one history it's so interesting also that was a brutal war yeah yeah it was for sure i think that's why i find it so interesting is because it's like technology has sped up and you have all this new technology and planes or whatever mm-hmm. but a lot of things like the idea of warfare and medicine and things like that hadn't caught up so it's right really it was in the middle of a weird time like yeah we were actually using planes to drop certain we weren't really dropping bombs as much as we were just like hard objects that would fall through and hit you in the head yeah. or whatever yeah yeah like they had nails and spikes they would drop out of planes. So yeah, it was a yeah, we totally have some of those at the museum. Of, yeah. Yeah, like uh, Fletchets, I think is what they're called. Yeah, yesterday I was at um, the hangar for Doc, the B-29 oh, Super yeah. Fortress. I had never been there before. I don't know how I went this long without doing it, but as a museum person, it's like, great, you know. It's cool. It. Doc is one of the, I think it's one of two in the world that's yes. still flying. Yeah, that one in Fifi. B-29. And I love here in Wichita, like, there will be days where you're just out and about and you'll hear a plane and you'll look up and you're like, oh, it's Doc. Like, I you know. can tell it's Doc. You can tell it's Doc. It's all shiny. You hear... Yeah. I mean... Yeah. You but, don't hear planes like that anymore. Yeah. They were talking yesterday when we were in the cockpit. They're like, yeah, and this is the window. They just open it up and just, like, shoot out the window. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you can fly in it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's like 1200 bucks. I know. I know. I actually made a TikTok about that that was like, yay, I'm in here. Oh, I don't get to take a ride. <laughs> I want to fly inside a dock. Part of me wants to just drop the cash because it's one of two in the world left. I mean... B-29s. Yeah. I was telling my parents, I was there with my parents, and I was like, how would you love to be the pilot of this? Like, if you wreck this, like, that is one of two remaining B-29s. Yeah, you better know what you're doing. Yeah. Well, that's also what I have to sit and think about with my job is like, oh, man, like, if this building burns down, that's two mummies gone. You know, like, <laughs> right? it is. A, I try not to think about that because I could get really stressed about, like, the amount of things that are under my I care. know. You know, and you can't really rely on original B twenty nine pilots because they're probably in their nineties now. If they're yeah, still around. there's and even in my time at the museum when I started at twenty fourteen in twenty fourteen, we had several um, World War two vets that would come in and tell their stories. Um, one of them they actually talk about in an exhibit at um, at the B twenty nine hangar. Uh, Charles Chauncey, I think he was a B seventeen pilot. I want to say a bomber, um, and there was a Tuskegee Airman, Doctor Don. Don Jackson, who's from Wichita, he'd come in. So we'd know all of these World War II vets, and none of them are alive anymore. <clears throat> they're all gone. Just from my time. Yeah, they're season. they're depleting quickly. You mm-hmm. know, when I was in middle school, we always had this Veterans Day thing where vets would show up, and I remember a lot of them being World War II when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back recently, when my brother was there, there's you know you don't see them anymore. Yeah, they're they're disappearing very quickly. Yes. Like, yeah, I, th- I think that's actually one of the reasons I find World War One so fascinating because it's modern, but I've never met anyone from that war. Mm-hmm. Whereas like World War II, I've met people from that war. So World War One is kind of that like really cool modern, but I've actually never met anyone from it's, that. It's arguably one of the worst wars ever fought yeah. to be involved in, you yeah. know, just yeah. the trench warfare and it's horrific. Well, there's just such good um, like literature and movies like, you know, 1917. Um, that was amazing. Shoot, what's the name of the Peter Jackson one? Um, 
Oh, they shall, they not, shall grow not grow old. Yeah, that one yeah. was really good. And that then, was fantastic. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front is a really good book, and there's some really good stuff. Just you know what fascinates me about that war is that mm-hmm. I think it was Christmas Day. Both sides of the war agreed. We're yeah. just going to play football. No yeah. bombs, no guns. Yeah. I've heard about that. How insane that. is that? I think there's actually a movie, uh, but it's in French. I haven't watched it, but it's called Joy Noel about that and i've been meaning to watch it because it sounds really interesting blows my mind like Mm -hmm. we're not gonna kill each other for a day let's just play some football and have fun yeah and then tomorrow we'll go kill each other yeah one of the things i love about working in the museum is like if i get excited about that i can work that into a tour and talk about it and get paid to do it you know (laughs) that's a (laughs) cool aspect of your job is yeah if something pops in your head or some random story you can just bring that right into your conversation i do that with a lot of tours like i really love roman history you know i went to rome like we were talking about with the drink yeah and I really liked the idea of Roman funerary traditions. Like I went to some different cemeteries or what's the term for it? Necropolises. Necropolis. In in Rome. And I thought it was really cool. So I actually made a tour element that I do with kids about how a Roman funeral would work, which is not a lot, what a lot of people talk about. But I go, okay, we're about to go talk about Egyptian funerals. When we see the mummies, let's talk about what the Romans did. So I can just like make that happen, which is really fun like i just get to oh yeah nerd out and get paid for it you know? right <laughs> so. what's one of the coolest facts you've ever learned studying history in different places or artifacts oh man can you think of anything off the top of your head i mean i'm just thinking of actually this was in college and i ended up doing my undergraduate thesis about it but um i ended up doing my under- undergraduate thesis about eugenics in kansas so eugenics would be um it's like the opposite of i'm gonna i'm gonna explain this really bad so like with the holocaust they tried to kill off all of the jews and you know everybody to try and cleanse the race Uh so that's an example of negative eugenics trying to clean out a race by killing people there's something called positive eugenics where basically you encourage a bunch of people within a race to breed so there was actually a program in the u.s that started in kansas um called the Fitter Families for Future Firesides contest that they did at the Kansas State Fair in the 1920s. And this is nuts. Like, it showed, these people showed up and it was just like farm families and they'd go in this building at the fair and they would like measure the circumference of their head and how tall they are and how good they are at things and they'd take all their health stuff and they'd give each family a score and they would give a medal to the fittest family and it was a way to encourage these people to breed really and actually a lot of the a lot of the um i guess words that they used were very much in the language of breeding because it was like the state fair you have a lot of farmers there so they would say you know we're going to reward the best stock they need to breed you know it was we got a good stallion in this family here yeah exactly it's stuff like that and that started in kansas which is so they would encourage other people to breed with this family well no just within the family they they, they'd encourage those parents to have a lot of kids okay yeah okay yeah and be like you're great and and for everyone else to look around and be like hey you should be like yeah you should be more like this family have a lot of kids you should tell your kids to breed with their kids yeah and like they would send information from this up to the like national eugenics group that is actually a group that would work with nazi germany down the, so it's like a Kansas connection to what eventually wow. happened. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. So, and I just like stumbled across this in college. I'm like, I got to write about this. And oh, I should add one of the judges for that contest, you know, when they were judging the kids was James Naismith, the inventor of basketball. Because mm-hmm. he's from KU and KU is close to Topeka. So he just 
bop on down there and uh, oh and also let's breed a good basketball team yeah exactly <laughs> also the guy who came up with cornflakes was involved with this too so yeah it's it's weird weren't cornflakes <laughs> invented for a very different reason than we might think yeah it was for a sanitarium or uh, is it sanitarium? it was to keep kids from masturbating no, that's, yeah. that's graham crackers. Are, are you sure? I think so. I think I th- so. I thought it was cornflakes. Maybe I'm wrong. I think it was graham crackers. But then the cornflakes they actually made for like a um, insane asylum. And they're like, uh, we need something to feed these people. Uh, cornflakes. So okay. that's what I learned. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, Eat your graham crackers. Don't masturbate. Unless you're with one of these families that got a high score. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> Then exactly. find somebody to do it with. Well, I was going to say don't <laughs> masturbate. Like go actually make kids. <laughs> Oh, it's bizarre. Like the things. Well, and the the people with this group were very like, you know, if you have anyone in the family with epilepsy, say you shouldn't be breeding, depending on how intense they were. So I've given a few talks about that. And I'm always like, well, according to some of these people, like they wouldn't have wanted me to get married and have kids because I have a sister with epilepsy. So they'd have said I was unfit. You know, they were very particular about you know improving the race so to speak human beings have done some crazy ass stuff yes throughout history they definitely have <laughs> and it wasn't even that long ago mm-hmm. i mean there's people that were born in the 1920s that are still mm-hmm. around yeah just That's think about true. how crazy that is yeah yeah well like with um with doc they still have this gal named connie palacios who was one of the original riveters on doc she's 99 years old really yeah yeah i went to school with her grandson <laughs> but she's she's still going and they said she'll come down there and she'll like climb up into doc and she's just you know like four ten maybe yeah. just like super <laughs> short but like oh my goodness she's still alive <laughs> that's amazing yeah love hearing about stuff like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those people are, you know, that's sad because when we're older, people like that are going to be gone. Yeah. There won't be anybody around from World War II anymore. There yeah. won't be anybody around that riveted dock. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what people will be interested to hear from us when we're older. The invention of the internet. That's true. I feel like our generation, I'm like just assuming on your age here, but, but our generation is the ones that like, I never used the internet till fourth grade. So like, I distinctly remember pre-internet and post-internet. I mean, it was definitely around before I was born. I was born in 95. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely around in there and mm-hmm. it was a thing, you know, throughout my whole childhood, but readily accessible internet usage on especially mobile devices and stuff, that was never a thing. You had to be on an old desktop computer and then yeah. you had the weird dial up sound. Oh gosh, yeah. So mm-hmm. really, I mean, and plus the birth of social media, yes. that's something we can vividly remember. That's true. I also feel like, I, I wonder how much people will ask us about COVID. Like when I was in my history brain, when COVID first came around, I'm like, I should like journal about my feelings every day so that yeah. like I can give that to my grandkids <laughs> when they ask about COVID. But I don't know. I wonder if they'll be curious about that or if it'll just oh, be I'm like sure. the Spanish flu of 1918 that everyone forgot about, you know? Yeah. yeah. I'm sure it will. Yeah. I think about things my parents went through and I always ask them, you know, do you remember this? Do you remember, remember when the that Challenger went down? Exploding? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Challenger or things like that. So I guarantee kids will ask us about COVID someday. Yeah. That never got to experience it or yeah. remember it. I guess 9-11. Like, I remember 9-11, so... 9-11, I remember, too. Yeah. And we're probably one of the last ones that remember that. Mm-hmm. How old are you? I'm uh, I'm 30, so I was born in 92. Okay. Yeah, but my youngest sister was born right before 9-11, so it's even within my family, like, a generation Yeah, gap. same. My mm-hmm. brother was born in 04, mm-hmm. so he obviously has no recollection of anything in that era. Yeah. But I remember 9-11, and that's also not a thing anymore with people younger than us really yeah well and it's also interesting because you know now that we've got more time from 9-11 we can i can sit and look at i remember in 2001 and 2002 when everyone was wearing usa shirts and you know saying never forget and things and 
having slowly seen the breakdown and the polarization of conversation within the country. Right. Like, it's like, wow, I'm old enough now that I've seen that. I, I saw us go from being really unified to being really split. Right. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm seeing history happen. It is. So, yeah, it's happening right in front of you. Yeah, yeah. You don't realize it until it's in the past, though, you know. Right. Which is why when I watch movies and they're like, what will history say? You know, when they're making a decision, what will history say? I'm like, nobody says that in the moment. Nobody no. ever <laughs> says, what will history say? And I can say that because I'm a history professional. <laughs> I always love on Back to the Future when Doc mm. asks him, you know, who's the president, future boy? And he goes, <laughs> Ronald Reagan. And he's like, the actor? The actor? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Back to the Future. Yeah, Back to the Future, classic. Mm-hmm. One of the best. Night at the Museum movies. A lot of people think I would hate those because I work at a museum. They're very wrong, obviously, but I love them. Those are good movies. Well, my thing is, well, one of the things they taught us when I was learning to be a tour guide was they're like, it's not your job to teach everything. It, your job is to, um, what is it? You, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink, but you could put salt in the oats and make them thirsty. They're like, mm. your job is to put the salt in the oats and make yeah. them thirsty. Trick them. Yeah. So I feel like going to, like, watching Night at the Museum, like, people are like, oh. I want to go to a museum. I want to learn about history. Oh, yeah. You know, so I'm like, I don't care that they get some things wrong. I'm like, are people more interested to learn about history after they see those movies? Right. Yeah? Okay, gold. Right. You know? Make it interesting. Yeah. I, I enjoy those movies yeah. a lot. <laughs> so what's your advice out there to people or people that want to work in a museum? Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of depends on age range. You know, if you're high school or something, I know a lot of high schoolers will go and shadow. So I'd say go shadow a museum worker and see if their day-to-day is good for you. Um, If you're in college, I mean, obviously taking some history courses, um, depending on the college you're at, there may be a museum studies program. Not a lot of that in undergrads, though, as far as I know. Um, But definitely in your college and you're interested in it, you know, spending some time volunteering or being an intern is a really good way to see if that's your thing that you Passion. like. Yeah, because I mean, the ultimate, the bummer downside with it is that it is nonprofit work most of the time. So oftentimes it doesn't pay super, super well. So it's something that if you're going to do it, you better like it and you better be passionate yeah. about it. The and reward better be yeah. the actual work. And there is high demand for it because it's it's a fun job, you yeah. know, so it can be hard to get a museum job. So getting a volunteer position or an internship, um, you know, getting your foot in the door is really good. And even there are museum conferences you can go to, or you can go get your museum studies masters um, can be really good. But usually would you my recommend, biggest... Would you recommend going to school for sure? Uh, actually for me, and I don't know if this is like not really politically correct or whatever thing to say, I, I don't actually. Yeah. I don't have a museum to studies degree. I know people who've gotten it, who, who regret it. Um, so I, I know some people who teach museum studies programs. They're amazing people. It's just in our current, I don't know, economy. And the way things are you know, run. It can be very sure. expensive to get a master's, and especially if you're in the Midwest and you're not getting paid a lot in a museum. Um, like I, I've gotten as far as I have without a master's. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe just jump in from the start if you're interested in it. Yeah, get your yeah, in the door. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can always go back and get it. So, yeah. But I mean, I, I sometimes wish I had a museum studies degree. They do learn a lot of good things. Uh, someday may still get, go get one, but I for myself don't have one yeah so, yeah yeah well that's good to know i mean it's it's one of those jobs that's yeah. kind of like teaching and other things where it's very rewarding if it's what you're into but mm-hmm. it might not pay you six figures mm-hmm. every year yeah that's the nonprofit yeah. world thing usually <laughs> yeah 
So, but when you think about it, I mean, you're basing solely all of your profits are coming from tickets from customers, basically, right? Yeah, it depends on your museum. And donations, the, maybe. Yeah, the goal for museum is to be. I think usually the standard that's quoted is seventy five percent grants and donations and whatnot, and then twenty five percent revenue, like tickets through the door. Yeah, our museum is more. Um, we rely a lot on revenue, people coming in, um, but we get donations as well. Mm-hmm. But um, kind of what we like to say to each other on the staff is like when the water level goes up, we all go up. So if we're able to get more people to come in, you know, we all do a little better. Yeah. Um, or if we have better programs for the Wichita community, because as a nonprofit, ultimately we're here to serve the Wichita community. We're not here to make money. So for sure, the better we do for the Wichita community and the greater community, the better you know we'll do for ourselves and you're serving a very important purpose and role oh my goodness the like the really really touching stories that we hear like like just last month i had a gal who used to volunteer at the museum and she would always come to this one program with her dad and i ran into her actually at the wichita art museum i was hanging out at the wichita art museum and she came up and she just started crying i'm like oh my gosh like what happened and she's like well my dad died a few weeks ago and she's, she said, one of my most treasured memories with my dad is we would go to this program. It's called Coffee with the Curator at the museum. He and I would go do that. And he said, she said, you know, seeing you reminded me of that really good memory I had with my dad. I was like, oh my goodness. It's awesome. Yeah. Or we had one where this guy, um, we had kind of a famous historical figure, the Candy Bomber, um, came in and visited the museum in 2019. And this guy's dad got to meet the candy bomber shortly before he passed. So this guy had pictures of himself and his dad and the candy bomber. And he said, those are like my most treasured possessions is these photos that we had at the museum. You know, we had a kid once that was nonverbal, I think probably autistic or something that the one of the first times he ever spoke at school was during a tour at the museum and he just like lit up and started talking about mummies just because he was so excited so excited and i just like i get goosebumps as i talk about it but it's sometimes i forget like what great things can happen yeah at the museum well it's one thing to teach about these things in schools and show them in a textbook and it's another to actually put it in front of their face exactly this is a real mummy Mm-hmm. This is a real dinosaur. Yeah, this is cuneiform. You just saw it in your textbook, you know, for sixth graders. Yeah, they all yeah. see it. So, yeah. It's it's super important. And the world would be a much worse place without people like you and museums. Mm-hmm. I think of all the artifacts out there that would probably be in somebody's garage or destroyed or something if museums weren't displaying them yeah, and taking care of them. And that's exactly why it is a nonprofit, so that it, those items belong to the community. So a lot of people ask, where would these things go if you shut down? Well, we're a nonprofit. Our stuff belongs to the community. So we actually have all these policies that try as best as they can to make sure that these items would go Are to taken care another of. museum or something like that. Right. So it's ultimately there for the community's benefit. So, yeah, it feels really good to know that, you know, every day I'm doing that for the community. Right. Yeah. So. It reminds me of that quote. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, Dead Poets Society. Yes. Or Robin Williams says, you know, Lawyers, doctors, these are noble pursuits and essential to life. But art, you know, um, poetry was the big one in there. He's like, these are the things that we live for. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of what a museum is. That's the role you're fulfilling there. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually interesting. I once saw a thing and it just, it clicked something. They were saying that you talk about STEM, you know, people talk about science, technology. What's the E? 
I don't remember in math, <laughs> whatever it is, but uh, science and math, right? You have STEM and they say, well, STEM is a good analogy. Imagine it like the stem of a flower. STEM exists to hold up the humanities. So that'd be like history, art, literature. Right. So they're like really, everyone puts a lot of value on STEM and rightfully so. It's the right? structure of the flower. But yeah, but, but let's beauty. not forget the importance of, of music and the things that we're here for the things know? that keep you going yeah that make know? us us you know right so i yeah i get really excited about that kind of stuff <laughs> it's it's cool yeah, yeah it's awesome the work you guys are doing is great yeah do you have any other last words you want to say out there about museums or about being a museum worker or anything i mean i really enjoy it it was an unexpected really unexpected thing for me being a museum worker but i really like it and uh if you haven't visited a museum recently i would i mean obviously the museum World Treasures is a great one to visit if you're in Wichita, but any local museum to where you are is always a really good place to go. Um, I was actually reading a thing the other day where they were saying that in a study group, these people, they took their blood pressure before they went in and after, and I want to say their blood pressure went down by like 75% or something. There was some measure of stress that they took that went down 75% during a person's museum visit. Just because it made them more relaxed and laid back. Yeah, and it also improves empathy and a sense of social connection. And like they had all of these different standards by which like it was a healthy thing to visit a museum. I was like, yeah, I like that. Well, (laughs) when you see a mummy sitting there and it makes you realize that's where we all end up. That's true. That's true. It is very good for... We all just look like a bag of bones in the end. Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. know? It's true. (laughs) We're all the same. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well... If you're in the Wichita area, go check out Museum of World Treasures and let us know where we can find you at. Social media, anything like that? Yeah, so we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Um, We are at worldtreasures.org is our website. Um, And we are in Old Town, Wichita. So we're near to River City Brewery, uh, Public at the Brickyard. So it's 835 East 1st Street. We're open every day. So check us out. and yeah three floors of all the things you heard me refer to three floors of floor i said fours fours three floors of cool stuff Mm -hmm. so that's all on my social media pages go check it out go click on those links and find Kristen. she'll tell you all about this stuff she'll talk your ear off and she'll give you some good info absolutely hell yeah (laughs) it's my job (laughs) thank you so much for coming on Kristen. i appreciate it thank you did you enjoy the spritz i did enjoy the spritz it's something totally different cheers cheers (laughs) 